Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hey, Donna. How are you? I'm good. So just so you know, everyone is watching and listening, so don't say anything too inappropriate. <laughs> Challenge we accepted. Friend, we had dinner. <laughs> <laughs> Can you guys hear okay? Okay. So, Donna, we're going to go ahead and start, and I'm going to try to hold my phone and report and ask questions. So we're going to pray that it works. Okay, so we're recording. What's going to happen is this is going to be an episode on the podcast. So I was I will start the episode just by our normal introduction. Like Jim and I are so laid back. We don't have any set way of starting. So this is it. Okay. Welcome everyone to another episode. Today we are actually in, what was the name of this place? Greenbelt, Yes. I'll delete that part so I'll know exactly what I'm going to say. Today we are in Greenbelt, Maryland, and I am here with Teresa, and Donna is joining us by speakerphone, so I hope that everyone out there in podcast land can hear her okay. Donna, at any point in time, if you want to jump in, you're welcome to. We'll stop talking so you can. Thank you. You're welcome. So I wanted to start first by just making a short little mention. So... Wednesday, Gemma and I was going around Baltimore, and in the future or coming weeks, you'll hear some of the audio that we had recorded. We recorded with some really great people. You'll hear from the Joyce's family, Joyce Malecki's family. We also plan on doing a future podcast with them to go a little bit more in depth, but they met with us, and it was a very emotional meeting. You'll hear more connections between Kathy's case and Joyce coming up. We also met with... Some other important people, for example, Sharon Schmidt. So we met with her. We saw where her uncle's, excuse me, where her grandfather's shop was. We saw where Kathy's remains were found. And we recorded the entire time. So you'll be walking around with us. And that'll be something that's that's going to be coming up. A cool thing that I know if Gemma was here, that she would also agree with me, is we've done more than 20 episodes now that we've recorded. And we continue to find new information and we continue to speak to new people who are coming out to tell their story. And so one of the first things that I wanted to talk about really quickly, one of the things I wanted to mention really quickly, I posted this on the on our Facebook page, I think last night, but at the very beginning or end of the podcast, what I would like to start doing is allowing survivors, whether they've come out or not, to vocally say, I am a survivor. So I set up a phone number. The number is 812-727-4528. 
If you call the number, it will go straight to voicemail. We do not have the ability to look at who called. And if you call, all I want you to say is I am a survivor. And I got the idea for this because many people reach out to me, whether it be Facebook or email, saying how because of the keepers, they would like to come out to their family, but they're struggling with it. And I've also witnessed some people who say that they have suddenly got the strength to do that and it was their time to do it. So this will be a way for those who have said it to say it again. And so people can keep it on their mind that there are survivors out there. But also, I would like to give an opportunity for those survivors who are not yet ready to tell their story and to speak about it, the opportunity to say the words out loud. And so that's what you'll start hearing at the very beginning or end of the podcast. So again, the number is 812-727-4528. On Wednesday, we had met people for lunch, and I just wanted to share this quick story about being in the life of a podcaster. We met people for lunch. And of course I had no idea we were in Lansdowne, but I had no idea we were where we were going and we get there and Gemma and I cold call people all the time or we email them, which is always a very interesting thing because, Hey, I have a question for you. I know this is going to sound super weird, but there was actually a funeral home across the street from where we were having lunch and when I saw it, I was like, that name just sounds familiar. And I had to think about it. But actually, I had cold called the owner of it because we get tips all the time. And we had gotten this tip. So I was like, okay, I'll just call. So I call. A funeral owner lady answered. And I was like, yeah, I have a really weird question. And she's okay. And I was like, around late 1960s, early 70s, could you hide a body there for a period of time without anyone knowing? And she was like, maybe. And I was like, I promise this is not weird. But that was the place that I had called. And so I was like, Gemma, we can't be seen. I don't want that lady to, she'll recognize my voice. I know she will. But that just goes to show we are always cold calling people. And if we receive a tip, we follow up on it. And whether or not I call a funeral home one day and show up sometime soon for lunch across the street. Okay, so leading into this, Teresa's here with me today. Teresa will always hold a special place in my heart because I've been a podcaster now for a little more than three years. And it was actually because of uh, one of my, it was actually my very first episode that I did on a, a murder victim in Cleveland, Ohio, that I got connected and I heard about Kathy's case. I didn't know much about it. And when I first talked to someone over the phone, I really prefer not to know much just so I can ask questions. So I didn't know much. And Teresa's name was one of the first that I found while I was doing just a quick search for people to talk to. And this was prior to the keepers. And I remember calling you and I was sitting on my couch thinking we were going to talk, excuse me, that we were going to talk about a murder. And then all of a sudden, Teresa tells me what happened to her. And I will never forget how I felt just sitting there. What? And I think because of that, I wasn't expecting it. And Teresa, I want to say bless your heart just because my family is from the South, but Teresa, okay, I'm going to move this off there too. Okay. So as I was saying, Teresa will always hold, did I, Donna, are you still there? Okay. Okay. Well, I hung up on her too. I'm a hot mess sometimes and it's been a long week, but Teresa is very vocal about her experience and her wanting for change. And that's something that I will always look up for her for doing that just because I can't imagine 
what you've had to gone through, like what you've gone through and then to speak about it and then to do something about it. Like that's just amazing to me. Well, thank you for that. I really appreciate that. But what happened to me so long ago when I was just 16 has been with me my entire life. And I've often said that there is not a day that goes by that Father Maskell's name doesn't come into my head. I either read something about him or I just remember something like some of his fetishes that he had have stuck with me. And I come forward and talk about this because it needs to be told. People need to know that this weird stuff is happening and we have to stop it from happening again. And a lot of time there have been I don't like to say pro-church, but I'll say pro-church, saying that, oh, that was a long time ago. That was 40 years ago when he did all that. There's a case in 2018 of Father Foxhoven in Ohio impregnated a 16-year-old girl in 2018. Okay, that's last year. And I do Skype with Venezuela, Argentina, a lot of the South American countries, and they tell me that when they say anything about a priest touching them inappropriately. They go under house arrest. They actually have to wear ankle bracelets, and if they're lucky, they won't get shot. And that's South America. And I've heard from Ireland, where Maskell has a few kids. We got Germany, Australia, France, all over. So as long as there's abuse going on, I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to talk about going into Father Maskell's office when I was 16 years old and asking him for help because I had a problem with my parents. There was a communication breakdown. I'll talk about that. And within the first 15 minutes of being in Father Maskell's office, the door was locked and he had me naked within 15 minutes. So it was like going from the frying pan into the fire. And a lot of times I've said straight sex would have been a mercy, a blessing, but he had so many odd fetishes that the man was just all over the map. You've mentioned before to me, <clears throat> sorry guys, I'm not used to this weather up here. You've mentioned before to me about Maskell's enema back. Can you talk about that? Oh, yes. For some reason, Maskell had a fetish with orifices. He would like to lay me on the altar in the chapel at Keogh and press on my abdomen. And he would say that he was going to be a doctor. He wanted to be a doctor, but he got a higher calling to be a priest. And he said, you can't feel that. You can't feel that. You're full of crap. And he said, we're going to take care of that. So he'd take me into the bathroom, which was in his office at Keogh, and he'd administer enemas to me, and he'd pull his chair around and watch. And to this day, I have a lot of really weird bathroom problems, and my husband can tell you that if I don't have a locking door on a bathroom, I'm not using it. It's that kind of stuff. Teresa, can I interrupt you? 
Yes, please, Donna. <laughs> Sorry. I got the same. I have the same, too. I have to be so completely private of going to the bathroom and know that door's locked and everything else. Because I don't know. It makes it easy when you say that he gave you an enema, but more like you were chased around and tackled, wasn't it? Oh, that was the suppository. The enema didn't work for some ungodly reason. So he opened his desk drawer where he kept a lot of his weird play toys and he pulled out. I didn't know what it was. It was a suppository. Again, I'm naked except for my socks. I had my socks on. And Father Maskell literally chased me all around in his office. I was jumped over his desk, did a roll and ran into the corner and he tackled me. He caught me and he inserted the suppository and laughed hysterically, carried me into the bathroom and put me on the toilet and brought his chair around. Nothing happened because he inadvertently put it in my vagina and he was pissed. This kind of stuff. I always worry that he, because you can put drugs in suppositories. I always worried that was a way for him to give drugs to people. That makes total sense because a lot of times I remember going in there. I remember getting him taking my clothes off and chasing me around and doing this stuff. But then the next thing I'd remember is I was being driven to my parents' house by him in his car. And, and they thanked a good father for taking care of me. But I don't remember like from the first hour and a half and I was in there for at least six hours, what happened? So drugs could very well have been inserted that way. Oh, they, back in the 60s and 70s, they would uh, give suppository to nursing homes to old people that was called NOTEC and it would help them sleep at night. And I'm sure we were all given so many different drugs to affect our nervous system. I'm just interjecting. Yeah, I'd have to agree with that. Also the sodas. He always would give us a soda and he'd let us smoke a cigarette, which was merciful thing. But doing what he wanted to do was merciful. And I know now that the sodas had to be drugged because I have lost time three hours. And a lot of times I lay at home trying to go to sleep and trying to remember, how did I get dressed? Who put my clothes on? I remember. I remember my clothes never being buttoned any way I would button them to go to school in the morning. I'd be so neat and they were always buttoned wrong. And I wonder what happened to me. Yeah, it was a mystery. It was a mystery. But see, the problem that was happening with my parents was a severe problem. It was uh, the Vietnam War was going on, 1968, and I was hanging around with hippies. And one day my mom smelled wine on me and asked to look through my purse, and she found some paraphernalia, and she also found an unused syringe. Now, the unused syringe was for a friend of mine that had gotten into heroin and she had contracted hepatitis. I got that needle for her from another friend whose father was a doctor. And I tried to tell my parents that, but 
at 16 with a needle in your purse, it didn't fly. They were hysterical. They could not be consoled. I had ruined the whole family. And when I went to school the next day in hysteria, I went to Father Maskell. I went to him because during open house at Keo, they, the guard, the guide or whatever said, if you ever have a problem, there's the good Father Maskell here that will help any of the girls get through any problems they may have. So my good friend Linda walked me down to Father Maskell's office and I said, I need help. My, my parents found things and it's not what it seems. Could you please help me? And he smiled and he led Linda out and locked the door. And then he started abusing me at that point. A detective came and knocked on the door. And I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? As we deep dive into these chilling tales, we all need a moment of escape. A way to unwind without the shadow of the night creeping in. Here's where Recess Mood comes in. Crafted with real fruit and infused with mood-lifting magnesium and stress-balancing aptogens. Recess Mood is your guilt-free retreat. With just 20 calories, no added sugar, it's not just a sparkling water, it's a sanctuary and a can. Imagine unwinding during a gripping episode of Foul Play with a can of strawberry rose, or my favorite, raspberry lemon, letting the stress melt away without the aftermath of alcohol. It's my little secret to staying balanced in the chaos of a busy life. You deserve a healthier way to unwind, to recharge, and to prepare for the next journey into the unknown with foul play. And for the devoted foul play listeners, you deserve a healthier way to unwind. Head to takearecess.com shane to get 15% off Recess Mood, your go-to alcohol replacement. One of the things that I wanted to ask you about was collateral damage. We know a lot of the abuse that you went to. Can you tell me about the collateral damage that you had to suffer? Yes. My daughters and I are very close. I They've gotten me through a lot. And uh, just recently, my oldest daughter, Lisa, said, Mom, I want to talk to somebody. I want to talk to the news about this. I want to tell them what I went through as a kid. I want to, them to know that growing up with a mother that was sometimes not there, even though she was there, I didn't understand you. You weren't an easy person to talk to. You took care of us, but it was like going through zombie motions. And she is collateral damage. She suffered through her childhood, not understanding why mom's 
a little wacko every once in a while. We, I raised them all pagan. My, my youngest daughter, as a matter of fact, my first mother-in-law forced me to take her to Sunday school. And she, at age five, said, who's the dude on the cross? <laughs> I loved it. And the Sunday school teacher looked at me and I said, we're leaving now she doesn't need to know who the dude is and we left but i always raised them to follow the golden rule do to others what you want done to you but you do not need to go in those buildings they call churches because you don't need it and when you're an adult if you want to go worship a rock in the backyard fine by me if you want to go into those churches go ahead but i did not raise them in any can i interject here of course my, my daughter speaks out also but i did i do believe in a universal god and i would take my kids to church and not during a church service at first and then i would take i would always look for holy people one time i met mother teresa i took my kids to see, and my daughter ended up joining a convent. When they heard the keepers was coming out, they put in a, they told her they wanted her to go to Africa. And my daughter, uh, they would pay her medical education. And my daughter said, no, I want to be a teacher. My daughter had to leave the convent because of the keepers, they were going to send her to a small town in Africa. And I felt so bad, I can't tell you about that. But my daughter is continuing on, and she follows her goal of teaching theology and philosophy. But she is all in for following a true God, true church that takes care of people and not harm them the way the Catholic Church has. That's all. Deeply respect everyone's faith. I'm never here to bash anyone's religion. I deeply respect everyone, whatever your faith may be. But say, bury me with a physics book. Don't put a Bible in there because I'm more into science and I just don't have any belief. Do you think that what happened to you at Keo affected that? Is that what you think caused that? I think it did because when I was in elementary school at St. William of York, I was a devout Catholic. I did the First Holy Communion. I was a model student. I did the Stations of the Cross. I visited church. I wrote stories about the Bible for extra credit, and I believed, most importantly, I believed that the priest was God on earth, because that's what we were taught back then. If you have a problem, you go to a priest, because that's God on earth. And I, that's what I did when I was in trouble, and it just all went south, and I was never able to recover religion after that. I never desired to either. I had a first grade experience. I had been abused previously by my natural father, biological father. And I went to 
I remember being in first grade, and the sister was Sister Monica at St. Agnes, where I went to grade school at. And uh, Sister Monica started the plan by saying, you have a perfect father and a perfect mother in heaven. Your earthly parents aren't always perfect. That stuck me my whole life and helped me get through different situations. I'm thankful for Sister Monica. And after Maxwell, everything was destroyed by him and my faith. I even swallowed in the first and second grade where the nuns taught us about hell and the nun, some of them were very sadistic, said that picture yourself burning for all eternity, forever and ever, like a piece of charcoal that's never going to burn out. You're going to burn there forever. And even your mom can't drop one single drop of water on your tongue to give you any relief. That's where you're going to go if you don't follow the rules of the church. And it wasn't just the the rules of, I don't know, the Ten Commandments. It was the church rules, the canon rules, like don't eat fish on Friday. Oh, my God, if I ate a fish, don't eat meat on Friday. If I ate meat on Friday, I just thought it was all over. I will add one quick thing that I really love is that I've noticed on Facebook, on the Archdiocese page, that... A lot of people can comment what they want, and they haven't been deleting it. And so one time there was a post about not eating meat because of a certain reason. I'm not Catholic. I'm sure you all have heard that many times. And Gemma was brave enough to comment something about, oh, so we'll go to hell if we eat meat? Like, why is this a thing? And it's still there deleting those things. I will say a quick thing also, and I say this all the time. I promise someday I'll stop saying it. But I'm not Catholic. Never was Catholic, but this experience, it seems like it's a cult. I don't know if I'm the only person that thinks that, but it truly does. Like, it's scary. Yeah. So I would have to agree for the reason that at St. William of York, religion was paramount. It was through interwoven between all of our subjects, had other subjects, English, math, and what have you. But all the time, the nun would end up bringing God into it. And then we'd all have to kneel down on the wooden floor and say the rosary. And back then, we didn't have air conditioning in those schools, by the way. We wore wool outfits, and we had to kneel and say the rosary. And we would be taken to visits to the church whenever the nun felt like it. So some of the day, I would say four hours would be for religion, and we might get an hour of math if we were lucky and a little bit of English. That's not right. Not right. Yeah. Donna, was there any other questions that you wanted to ask about the abuse before I move on to Maryland's law? Lisa and I, when we're together, I know, like, alters really bother. And enough to put you in a post-traumatic state stage. And after you've been exposed to abuse on an altar, what can you say about religion? He has destroyed everything. And what I'm going to end on a happier note. I want to tell you why I'm so vocal. And it's for the reason you started this podcast. I want to give words that are unspoken to people so they can 
learn to speak out. It is so good and a free feeling to be able to speak out. That's why I thank you for this opportunity. Teresa, can I tell them the story of when we went to a graveyard in near where you live? Oh, yes. Go right ahead. So, Teresa and I, we were looking for a grave, and we were right by her house, and we drove to the church there, and we both start walking, and we both know that we've been there before. There are so many times when this happened, and it's one reason why I'm glad to live in Pennsylvania and not Maryland, that I know abuse has occurred there, that everything has been ruined. When you talk about collateral damage, driving down the street can be ruined. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, the Patapsco State Park, where Maskell abused my friend Linda and me, where we were both raped by cops while he looked on. It's hard for me to enjoy the wilderness. I, I like being outdoors, but stuff like that crashes down into your memory. And, of course, my friend Linda, she passed away seven days after the Keepers aired. It was She took too many pills, but she never got over it. She never was able to get over it and get on with your life, her life. That I had a, my best friend with Elaine and Elaine had died early in her life from alcoholism, I believe. And uh, it is how many people have lost their lives due to this, due to the church trying to save money. It's unbelievable to me. I'll speak of the money. That was a good point that you brought up, <clears throat> Donna. I have some figures that I want to talk about as well in just a moment, but I wanted to jump into Maryland's law that's currently trying to be passed. And if anyone has seen Facebook anytime soon, you probably would see Teresa out there with her sign, which is where she normally is. But I know that Maryland is trying to pass a law to eliminate the statute of limitations. Teresa, can you explain to us normal people who do not go inside courtrooms often what this means and what it could mean for survivors in Maryland. Yeah, the the Doe Road case back in 95 lost on a technicality. It was ruled before the case even started that the statute of limitation did stopped our right to sue, that we had 3 hour 3 years, excuse me, from age of majority to sue for Father Maskell raping us. And, of course, I was 40 years old when that case came through. The church has lobbyists that keep the statute in check so that it's virtually impossible to have any victims of clergy abuse or other abuse, for that matter, the coaches would have you sue because they limit the statute of limitations. What we're trying to do here in Maryland and Many other states are doing the same thing and hopefully we'll all be successful is to eliminate the statute of limitation on pediatric child abuse because it is soul death. When a child, a young person, an innocent person is sexually abused, they can't come forward. 
the average age for someone abused that is 52 years old. Okay, Marilyn made it seven years longer. We could sue. I think it's up to age 38 that people could sue. And then they throw clauses in the lobbyists paid by the church money, which people that go to church regularly put in a collection. It goes to paying these lobbyists to keep the statute the way it is. And they added a clause last uh, time, 2017, that we would have to prove gross negligence in order to sue the entity responsible for the perverted priest, which they enabled, which the bishops and the cardinals enabled, that we couldn't sue. We just couldn't sue because of gross negligence is impossible goal to reach as an attorney in Maryland. It used to be ordinary negligence, okay? Say I left the dog, the pit bull, loose in the front yard and a kid got chewed up. That's negligence. That's ordinary negligence. And gross negligence, an example of how hard it is, there was a case where a paramedic pronounced the man dead and he went to the morgue. And they found out he was alive. Fortunately, they were able to bring him back. However, that mistake didn't rise to gross negligence in the state of Maryland. It didn't rise to that. So the lobbyists make damn sure they throw in these words that are impossible to overcome. What we want is a two-year open window where everyone who has been abused can come forward and have their day in court. Tell the judge, tell the jury, tell the lawyers on the other side what it was like to have been sodomized and raped vaginally, orally, you name it. Let them hear it and then let the jury decide what should be done. And the church sure isn't going to do it. The church needs to fire the cardinals, fire the bishops, hold them accountable and put them in jail. If any of you went out and did this to a kid, you'd all be in jail. No question asked. But you put on the collar, you put on that collar, and it's magical. It'll keep you in money. It'll keep them in a nice retirement, sometimes over in the Vatican. But change is starting with the statute of limitations. We have to get rid of it. Well, the... With this law coming up, will this be effective for both criminal and civil? Just a civil. Okay, just a civil. They were getting confused, confusing at the Senate. I was at the Senate last Thursday, and the speaker for the church was trying to say that people would be able to sue for medical malpractice indefinitely and stuff like that. This statute of limitation, which we're trying for, is a very narrow thing. It goes to the victims of child sexual abuse only, and it gives them their day in court where they can get the money they need to go to therapists. I work for SNAP. I have had people cry to me that the church was paying for a therapist. Every day they felt like they were going to hang themselves, and all of a sudden they get a letter from the churches, oh, No more money for therapy. You're done. We can't keep sending you. That's not right. The statute of limitations would allow a jury to say, okay, let's provide this person mental therapy for the rest of their life. 
This is with me. I am 64 years old. This has been with me since I was 16. Never left. Teresa, I look at the National Institute of Health and their remarkable work they've done for veterans on post-traumatic stress, and it applies to childhood sexual abuse. Why you don't remember your brain is protecting you for a while. While it takes 40s or 50s or 60s to become healthy enough to be able to handle things. I can't the lobbyists look at this. That was another legal point was the repressed memory was not recognized in the 90s when my case came up. But since then, I have been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder and disassociative personality problems. But back then in the 90s, the church people coined the phrase false memory syndrome. It's not even recognized in the DSM, which is the Diagnostic Statistic Manual for Mental Disorders. The church made that up, false memory syndrome. And when they were saying my case, this repressed memory is impossible. It's not. It's been scientifically proven that yeah. the hi- hippocampus, right, Donna? The hippocampus yeah. of the brain. And the amagata, which makes a fight or flight, whether you're going to lay there. And you're so spiritual acting. That's definitely a rep- and like it comes from mammals, reptiles do this. Of course, we were protecting ourselves. People say, "How could? How come you didn't tell so and so? You couldn't even move or hardly breathe." I don't. And there's all this medical explanation and genetics working that way. How it has changed our genetics this happen and the church is just acting like we are hurting them it's out there for the world to sin i think the medical community really has to start speaking up for us yes they have and doing it more and more thank god yes i also wanted to talk about the pennsylvania payout which has been shared into the podcast discussion group uh, mainly because I have spoken to many survivors, Keo survivors, and one of the disgusting things, so if you're not familiar, Pennsylvania, uh, their grand jury report, they released it, and one of the names that has come up is Bishop Adam X. Anyone want to correct me? No? Okay, we'll go with that. They released his payout report. Of course, he's the bishop. And I thought it was very interesting Not only because these are people who are trying to defend themselves by saying, oh, that wasn't a problem, but they have a payout based on what happened to you. So I'll read it to you really quickly. They have four different levels of abuse. The first level is above the clothing, genital fondling, and the range of payout that they would give you for that is $10,000 to $25,000. Second level is fondling under the clothes or masturbation, 15000 to 40000 The third is oral sex, 25000 to 75000 And the fourth is intercourse, 50000 to 175000 That is just, it's crazy to me that they would have a system like that. Okay, this is, but that seems to be what they have for the Archdiocese of Baltimore, 
from the conversations that I've had, they'll see what you went through and they'll give you a scale payout. But I've also noticed that the amount is much, much less for the, the Keo women who I have spoken to. For this, you could get up to 175000 which is not anywhere close to what any of the Keo women have gotten for their payout for the, yeah, I'll make myself sound, sound super smart there, I promise. But I also wanted to ask you, and this may be a question that you guys would have to answer, but if this statute of limitation passes in Maryland, which we all hope it does, common sense tells you it should, just because I think that there should never be a limitation on something so stupid. If that passes, will that prevent anyone who has gone through mediation from filing again? No. I have found a way around that. I got $40,000 from the Archdiocese in 2010. Okay. After legal fees, I got about $28,000, which I divided amongst my grandchildren because I considered it blood money. I signed a release. Okay. I will never sue you for anything related to this. My children won't sue you. That's against the law. First of all, you can't sign away your legal rights as a child. But I talked to Joanne Souter, who I work with, about how in the hell are you going to get around a lawyer signing a release and coming back for the second bite of the apple, as they call it, because the release was based on fraud. The release was conspiracy. Cons- it's conspiracy. Cons- cons- yeah, I have trouble with words That's sometimes. Okay. But- I think you sound super smart, I promise. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And they played it down. I sat with these lawyers who, I don't know if they get a kick out of listening to it or not. And I had to tell them about sodomy, enemas, Father Maskell having chalice, filling the chalice with semen and making me drink it. Come on. What is wrong with this picture? We need a day in court. I'll gladly stand up and tell the whole jury all kinds of stuff that man made me do. And I believe that I can get each person, each Keo person that signed that release out of it because I've already drafted a complaint. I've already done a lot of research on this stuff and the conspiracy and the fraud is the big answer. They covered up. My settlement was in 2010, before the Keogh girls were coming forward after the Keepers. And in 2010, my attorney, Joanne, said that they hid from us. They played it down. They acted like Maskell maybe abused a couple people, and you're just one of them. And it's a lie. You prove that priest abused more, and I guarantee you one pedophile isn't going to stop at one person. I guarantee Maskell's abused at least 100 people. At least. He started in a seminary in the 1950s. The church knew. They just kept him going on through. They didn't care. So, yeah, there's a way around this. So don't lose faith. If we get that two-year window, I'm going to churn out the complaints and we are going to nail them to the wall. And don't worry, super Catholic people, you're not going to go bank, you're not going to bankrupt the church. They have so much gold in the Vatican and they own so much money 
that it's a misnomer for them to say, oh, you're going to bankrupt the church. The church needs to be stripped to the bottom and rebuilt because if there was a Christ, and I don't even know that there was, he didn't want his church run like this. He did not want it run like this. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. I hope I answered that. Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Those are things that we always cut. So that's one cool thing about you guys being here. I want to lead in to some of the things that I wanted to ask you, because, of course, this is now our third conversation. Yes, it is. Earlier in the podcast, we interviewed Dr. Richmond, who was also in The Keepers. She was one of the professors for Joseph Maskell when he was trying to obtain when he did obtain his post-master certificate for psychology, counseling, something like that. Dr. Richmond told us in the episode that she believed that maybe one of the reasons, because of course you have to remember the other people taking that small course would have been people that she tells us that should have recognized Maskell being a predator. So Is he taking this course to make sure he can hide that? I couldn't tell you. But Dr. Richmond believed that maybe one of the reasons why he was so well equipped to hide it is because she believes he could have had what is now called disassociation disorder, which was more commonly known prior as multiple personalities. She said she called him good Joe, and sometimes he was bad Joe, evidently. In your experience with him, Did you ever see any moments like that to where suddenly he wasn't a monster and then suddenly he just flipped and then he was? Yes, I did see that. There were times when Father Maskell would take me to his rectory after going to the gynecologist. And on the way to the rectory, he would buy me dinner and he would take me up to his room and he'd put on Irish music and he'd dance and we had dinner. And he told me that he loved me. He told me that I was very special and that he spent so much time with me because he cared. He cared. And there was times when I actually believed that he did love me. And I think now that was a way of just getting through it because he would be really nice. He would hug me. He would dance. And then it would happen. His face would change, and he'd say, okay, take him off, and then the rape would occur. But I did see spots of gentle eyes, not often, but they were there. Very interesting. So now what I'm going to do is allow, if any of you guys would ask questions, you can direct them towards Teresa, myself, if I can answer those questions, I, I just thought of another question while you were talking. You talked about all the time you spent in his office. I went to Catholic high school, and if we missed a period, we had to justify it somehow with the office. How did you get away with, or how did he get away with, not allowing you to go to class from 
one period to the next. My father asked him the question about me missing time at school. And he said, um, don't worry about that. I'll make sure she keeps up with her studies. That's what we do part of the time in my office. I'll make sure she won't fall behind. The teachers didn't ask anything, not at all. Even though when one time I was called down to the nurse's office and I went down there and Maskell was waiting for me and he took me to his office. That nurse I found in 1995, she was aged at the time, told her son she knew what Maskell was doing, but she was scared to death. She was scared. And Sister Kathy, I believe, was going to help us. And look what happened to her. If I was a teacher in a school like that, I don't know what I would have done. I ran the phone booths just to call the lawyers about it. This kind of stuff is scary. But as far as your question, um, I got, I graduated. I graduated no problem at all. Some classes I never went to. I, and I got an A. So I don't know. I will also add that Gemma and I have discussed this before between ourselves, and we both have the same opinion that, so to back up just a little, I had interviewed Sean, who, another little side note, when we first started recording podcasts, Gemma would sometimes call me Sean on accident. She does not do that any longer. She is very clear. But after, it was after our interview with Sean, he had sent me an email, and it was basically about how one of the problems in this narrative of survivors being abused by Maskell at Keogh is that, especially so many, is that Maskell wasn't a part of the administration because he was, is it chancellor? Is that the title for it? Chaplain. Yes. I'll make myself sound smart. Because Maskell was the chaplain. The problem with this is this belief that Jim and I both share from speaking to so many students, not just survivors, but students. It seems like to us that Maskell had this persona and almost like he was bullying these women. And as one, one survivor told me that I need to put my Catholic glasses on, these were nuns and this was a, a priest and one thing that I didn't realize and that I had no idea of is that evidently in the Catholic faith, especially in the late 60s, the nuns didn't really have any say. They weren't a part of the archdiocese. They were lower than the low. So the survivor, I had asked her that question, and her response to me was, what were they going to say? This is supposed to be God, if he tells you to do something, you're going to tell him no? In a time when even women didn't have full rights, let alone a nun talking to a priest. So that was my response to Sean. He didn't respond to me, weirdly enough. But I did that. That was a very good question. Was there? Yeah, what was the question? Oh. Uh, do we have any other? No, I was kidding. I said that, yes. Yes. So in the last question and answer, in the last question and answer, Gemma and I were talking and Gemma and I, we talk through these things. For example, Wednesday, we haven't shared with many people everything that we found out and stuff just because we need to process it first and to validate it before we share it because so many people listen to us. 
But that's what was my belief. Suddenly you have this nun telling him no. And I don't think he liked that. And I think that's what happened. And you'll find out later in a couple of weeks why, why, more of why. But I wonder too, if maybe Joyce did the same thing and maybe that's why she ended up dead. And a lot of people give Russ, Russell a hard time because she never spoke up. But if you put yourself in Russell's shoes, suddenly Kathy told him no, and look what happened to her. And Russell may not have feared that for herself, but he, they could have hurt her family. Yeah. So that was, yeah. So that had never come up in a discussion before until Jim and I were recording that episode. But that's exactly how I see it. Suddenly a nun and a woman tells him no. So I don't think he liked that very much. Yes. My, uh, back in the 90, 94, my attorneys told me that they had uncovered that Father Maskell's mother made investments, priest vestments, and he would wear them and he would get those little candies. I can't remember the name couldn't remember the name and he'd take out all the white ones and he'd put them in a chalice and he would say mass in in his backyard and other kids would come and he took everything seriously he was brilliant he was brilliant i'm sure he learned latin and he gave and his mother was like i'm going to have a priest for a son that was her dream so she groomed him and she ruined him and sending him, I think, what was he, 13 when he went to the seminary? He was re- really young, and he cried, and he begged to come back. He got sent back home once, but they wouldn't take him. They sent him back to the seminary, where he started playing strip poker with 11-year-old kids. I know because Joanne Suter actually sued on behalf of the, some of the boys that had to play strip poker with Maskell back in the seminary. He started abusing them, and the church knew. They knew they were bringing a nut, an insane psychopath, into the church, and they did nothing about it. Gemma and I recorded a timeline episode where we talk about <clears throat> um, Maskell's time, and so those that, that question may be a little bit more answered in that episode when it comes up. But I will add something that you just said that I thought was very interesting. When he first went to seminary school, he was only there for, I think, 14 days, and then he got too homesick, so they they sent him home. So he had to go back a second time. What was the... Yeah, go ahead. Okay, I will end it by reading this poem, and you'll notice that I'll mess up a bunch, but it'll sound smart when I'm done. So uh, Gemma, let me borrow her yearbook from Keo. This is the 1970 version. And in it, they put a page for In Memory of Sister Kathy Sesnick with her photo. And they put a poem. So I wanted to read it so everyone out there can hear it. So here we go. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. And sorry, I could not travel both. And be one traveler, long I stood, and looked down, one as far as I could, to where it bent in the undergrowth, then took the other as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for that the passing there had warned them really about the same, and both that morning equally lay, and leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day, yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages 
and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Robert Frost